Ladies and gentlemen, today I am standing up for Ovid. So Ovid is born in 43 BCE, in March, I think. It's almost exactly a year, just over a year, I think, after Julius Caesar has been assassinated on the theatre steps. Not with the words, et tu brute, as Shakespeare would have you believe, incidentally, but instead his final words are in Greek. Do you know this? He says, kaisu technon, you too, my child. He's talking to Brutus. I merely mention it. It's a bit more Oedipal, isn't it? Than a rubbishy old Shakespeare, that's all I'm saying. Traitor. Um, <laughs> and uh, Ovid is born in Sulmo, in the centre of Italy, and his full name, Publius Ovidius Naso. Naso means nosy. But he is growing up at a time of amazing Roman poetry, and particularly of love poetry. Um, and so perhaps it's no surprise that probably the first published works are the Amores, his love poems, which deal with lots of the themes of love poetry, lots of themes like lover's war, the locked-out lover suffering outside his mistress's house. But in the case of Ovid, as with Catullus, they really are quite racy. They're quite racy, the amores. I'll tell you that for nothing. And the good news is, well, the bad news is, it's because Ovid is basically a bit of a sex pest. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> it's borderline sex pest. When I say borderline, the border is behind him. And he's, <laughs> he's right in front of it, sex pesting away. Um, but on the plus side, because of that, we get poems like in the third book of the amores, in uh, the second poem there, he talks about why he likes going to the races because he can press up against the girl that he's attracted to. <laughs> I know, well, one man's frottage is another woman's <laughs> handy evidence about daily Roman life. <laughs> so while Ovid is pushing in for a bit of a cheeky grope, um, the good news is that we now know, therefore, that men and women could sit next to each other at the races, right? We might have thought they'd have segregated seating because of Ovid, and uh, you know, perhaps we wouldn't have otherwise known it. So. Hooray! <laughs> Sorry about the sex pestery. I mean, when I say he's racy, I'm really not messing about. A few years ago, one of the poems, 314. Ooh, the pie amore. <laughs> Even I am mortified by how lame that just made me sound. Ooh, pie and Roman poetry. <laughs> so, so in 314, um, it was set as an AS exam question, and it made a scandal in the pages of both The Times and The Daily Mail. I know, because it's full of uh, discussion about... It's about his mistress is having affairs with other men, and he's outraged about it, but in a sort of relatively charming way. And the bit that they chose for the exam was all about, you know, you open your lovely crimsony lips and you press your thighs against each other, and everyone was scandalised, because who could be less interested in kissing than 16- and 17-year-olds? <laughs> More on that a bit later. But now, please welcome my guests for today, Michael Squire and Llewellyn Morgan. So, Llewellyn, would you tell me a bit more about the conventions of love poetry when Ovid was writing? What kind of themes did Roman poets usually go for? First thing to say is that it is a very, 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 very conventional kind of poetry. So a lot of what Ovid is talking about in the Amores probably didn't happen. In fact, I go so far as to say none of it happened. <gasps> you know? And we can tell that because if what's happening to Ovid is really happening to Ovid, it's peculiar because it's happened to all the other labellagists uh, <laughs> as well. So they're constantly, as you say, they're stuck outside 
a house and the, the, the loved one is inside the house and they're trying to persuade the door to open or they're trying to persuade the, the doorman to let them in. They're constantly talking about their uh, love affairs as in sort of military language, which is a terribly shocking thing to, to do because military activity in Rome is very respectable, whereas what Ovid and these other love poets are, are doing is totally the opposite of respectable. So they're sort of taking respectable language and applying it to unrespectable things. Now, when Propertius is writing his love poetry, when Horace is writing his love poetry, half of the game of it is to appreciate the poetry, not to care less about the sort of love experiences that these people are having. It's all terribly, terribly self-conscious, except that Ovid turns that up to 11. Everything that he's doing in his love poetry is simultaneously being conventional and playing with the conventions and subverting the conventions. And it's probably no surprise that Ovid is the last important love elegist in Rome. Once Ovid has finished with this love poetry and then twisted it into the metamorphoses as well, because that's kind of a version of love poetry. There's nothing more to be done. And is that at least partly because of his um, incredible and layered use of irony? Because I always think Catullus is the one you should read as a teenager, mm -hmm. because Catullus is always properly, you know, burning to death with love. Yes. And then Horace is the one you should read when you're a grown-up, because he just seems too fuddy-duddy when you're young. Yeah. Um, and now he makes perfect sense to me, because I'm so old. Um, and, and then Ovid comes in with just all the irony in the world, and maybe there's just no sincerity left after he's finished with love poetry. But he recognises that as, as well, because he's... There are three books of the Amores, as you, as you told us. After the Amores, he writes, he continues to write love elegy. It's just that he calls it the metamorphoses. It's an epic, it's epic uh, love poetry. Or it's his exile poetry, which is like, you know, he's, he used to be excluded from his lover's uh, house. He's now excluded from Rome because he's been exiled um, by Augustus. So, yeah, he's, he's completely squeezed from this form, wonderfully, brilliantly, inventively, um, utterly readably, all that can be taken from it, I think. There's a little epigram written by Ovid that goes at the beginning where he says, we used to, he's in the persona of the poetry. Uh, he says, we used to be five books, but now we're three, our creator cut us down. So if you don't like us, less of us to read. <laughs> That's quite charming, isn't it? If only modern film directors had that attitude <laughs> to their work. Peter Jackson, I do mean you. <laughs> with your 45 hour version of The Hobbit. <laughs> Um, so he follows on the amores uh, with well a set of poems which I think justify no matter how sex pesty he is and he definitely is you might not want to read him I mean I, some of him is very uncomfortable reading I can't pretend that he isn't some of the amores and particularly the ars amatoria which we'll talk about more later the guide to love which means a guide to having adulterous affairs. It is very difficult to read. For Ovid, no very rarely means no, and he can seem extremely unpleasant. And whether that's real Ovid or a persona, because he's full of irony, um, that's, a, that's a difficult question. But in his defense, I would argue, number one, you don't get very far by expecting people from 2,000 years ago to live up to contemporary standards. And number two, 
If you turn your back on Ovid, I would completely understand it, but you would miss out on not just a brilliant poem that we'll come to later, The Metamorphoses, but also on the Heroides. And the Heroides, heroines is the translation, is the most extraordinary thing for him to write so early on in his career. It's probably the second piece of work that he publishes after the Amores. And it's a set of letters from the heroines of Greek myth to their absent menfolk. So Penelope to Odysseus, or Ulysses, as uh, obviously Ovid would call him, uh, to give him his Roman name, Hypsipyle to Jason, Dido to Aeneas, Ariadne to Theseus. And these are women who often, apart from in Greek tragedy, where, you know, obviously Euripides and Sophocles uh, give women some fantastic roles, but often these women have been entirely overlooked by poets who, who, uh, from whom we know them. If you read about Penelope in the Odyssey, you'd be looking a long time to find what kind of person she is. She's passively waiting for Odysseus to come back while doing a bit of weaving. <laughs> and then some unravelling. Mm, radical. <laughs> weaving again. Okie <okey-cokey. laughs> There's not much of actual Penelope there. And then when Ovid takes her on, she becomes a proper three-dimensional character, writing to Odysseus to say, the Trojan War finished ten years ago. You're where exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Troy's how far? <laughs> How many weeks away by boat? Uh-huh. So you're probably with Circe or Calypso or Nausicaa or basically anyone who stands still for 15 seconds. On your, of course she's peeved. Who would not be peeved in Penelope's position? That was far more peeved. That's really tested the microphone, hasn't it? <laughs> Definitely didn't pop. Hooray for it. Um, so it is worth, I would suggest, getting over, if you can, um, many of the horrible things that you might dislike in Ovid, because the Heroides is proof that right at the beginning of literature, really, you know, this is some of the earliest surviving literature, some of the best literature ever written, and in a, a society which was not in favour of women having a vote or equality, or really very much at all, frankly, here is an upper-class, privileged man who spends a huge chunk of time writing a whole set of poems, imagining what it might be like to be the woman in this story. That's not nothing. It just isn't. If you don't believe me, think how many films you see now where there aren't really any women in them at all. <clears throat> the Revenant. Um, <laughs> in which, let's remind ourselves, the primary female character is a bear. <laughs> I talked a little bit about uh, people finding Ovid problematic mm. um, with some justification, I think. And he really has been, been banned from some universities. How do we read him now? It seems to me a terrible shame to, to just dismiss him because he's difficult. One thing I uh, think I'd say is that we're reading Ovid even if we're not reading Ovid. Because when we talk about Greek mythology, you read the Metamorphoses and you discover that actually what we think of as Greek mythology is really to a great degree, what Ovid created in The Metamorphoses. The Metamorphoses is, the, is the, the most kind of influential formulation of these amazing stories. So we can't help it. The Metamorphoses are in our culture. You know, they're in our, our minds all, already. It's, I suppose, another thing to say. I mean, Ovid is a Roman, OK? Um, sorry, that comes a great... Revelation. Uh, <laughs> Newsflash. Um, <laughs> Roman tolerance of violence and indeed sort of enjoyment of violence is just something that we sort of have to factor in when we're reading this stuff. One thing you can say about the metamorphoses is it is actually equal opportunities 
violence. I mean, that there are women having violence um, inflicted upon them. There are men having violence inflicted upon them. Marcias, we're being encouraged to laugh by Ovid as Marcias is flayed. Does that make any better? It is really revolting, that <laughs> it's one. Really it is really revolting. revolting. That's why but, I didn't mention it. It's you who's lowered the no, tone. It's, really <laughs> uh, it's so well written. It's so, so fluent. It's so, so compelling, this storytelling. And it so, so never stops at the end of books in a satisfactory way that you read it for 15 books. You can't put it down. So you can't stop reading Marcias, even Marcias. You get to the end of the poem and you can't remember anything that's happened or where it's happened, you know, because it's just so, so, it's flowed past so quickly. So, I don't, you know, it's, it's brutal, but it's gloriously readable and superficial at the same time. Llewellyn, would you read us a tiny bit of Ovid? I will. Then Daedalus fastened the feathers together with twine and wax at the middle and bottom, and thus arranged, he bent them with a gentle curve so that they looked like real bird's wings. His son, Icarus, was standing by and, little knowing that he was handling his own peril with gleeful face, would now catch at the feathers which some passing breeze had blown about, now mould the yellow wax with his thumb, and by his play would hinder his father's wondrous task. And then the Latin. Tum lino medias et ceris allegat imas, et quita compositas parvo curvamine flex, Ut veras imitetur aves, puer icarus una stabat a et ignarus suase tractare pericla, ore renidenti modo quas vaga morat aura captabat plumas, flava modo pollice ceram molibat, lusuque suo mirabile patris, Impediebat opus. So, um, in 8 CE, in the year 8, uh, Ovid is exiled by the Emperor Augustus. And the question as to why is one which has puzzled an awful lot of people for a very, very long time. So here's the thing. Ovid tells us what he's done but it's very hard to tell what he's done. He says he's exiled for two reasons. Carmen et Error, a poem, probably the Ars Amatoria, I think we can safely say, a poem and a mistake. <laughs> right? So the poem probably is the Ars Amatoria, though it's published some years before the banishment, so maybe not. But the, the whole point of the poem is, why not pursue a married woman? Definitely don't take no for an answer. And that is a risky position to take in the time of the Emperor Augustus, who is constantly issuing laws on how people should behave, moral laws. But the mistake? That's a really difficult question. Presumably, if it had been a crime, he might have been executed rather than banished. He's banished to the far end of the Black Sea, to Tomis. Presumably, people have said maybe it was a, a plot to try and kill the emperor. You think he'd have been executed for that too? Some people suggested that he had an affair with Augustus's daughter, Julia, who's also exiled to a different place before it sounds more fun than it is. Um, <laughs> that's quite an odd thing to describe as a mistake, isn't it? <laughs> One foot on a banana skin. <laughs> Over there, the emperor's daughter. <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> awkward. Um, and so he ends up stuck on the Black Sea. This a hyper-sophisticated, metropolitan man is stuck in the middle of nowhere for the later years of his life. He dies in exile. Somewhere. 
And so the poetry that he writes in exile, his love letters to Rome, I suppose, are the Tristia, which I didn't talk about at all, so I was wondering mm -hmm. if you might. Uh, a whole set of books called the Tristia, then a whole set of books called Epistolae ex Ponto, letters from the Black Sea, the Black Sea where he's been exiled to. And Tristia means... And Tristia means the poems of sadness. Yeah. There's a reason why he's sad. He's, he's the most urban, urbane poet there's ever been. His poetry comes from the city. He is himself so much a product of the Augustan city, the peace and the culture of or the Augustan city. And he's taken from that city and, taken and sent to the middle of absolutely nowhere, to Thomas on the Black Sea. And it's like death to, to him. But... Ovid is never entirely dead whilst he's still making poetry. So I think when Augustus sends Ovid to Thomas, what he, one thing he hopes is that he'll never hear a single word from Ovid again. That's one thing that's guaranteed. He'll never hear Ovid again. And that's what's really beautiful about the exile poetry is that like 12 months after Augustus sends Ovid to a place off the edge of the world, sends him to the moon somewhere, you know, a book of Tristia come back. I would very much like to uh, offer up my three favourite stories in the Metamorphoses. Number one is in book one, and that is the story of Lycaon, Lycaon if you prefer. He's a king, and we hear this story from the mouth of Jupiter himself, king of the gods. And Jupiter has gone to Lycaon's palace to test him uh, because he's heard he's a generally bad egg. I paraphrase slightly. And Jupiter turns up to test Lycaon's behavior. And Lycaon decides that the absolute best way to find out whether this man who claims to be a god is a god or just a man is to try killing him and see what happens. <laughs> Which is a little bit like going, I wonder if that iron's hot. I'll just test it against my face. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so he decides to give a go at killing Jupiter, at which point Jupiter calls down a massive bolt of lightning and Lycaon races from the palace until he find, runs and runs until he finds himself in a clearing in a forest and goes to speak and finds he can only howl. He looks down and sees that his clothes have turned into fur. It's an early werewolf narrative, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I know, you can call me Team Lycaon, I'm just saying. Um, I'm so happy. <laughs> I mean, there are really nasty stories in this too. Nastier than turning into a werewolf, which is actually not that bad, really. It looks quite fun, etc. Um, but uh, the story of Acteon is, again, there are stories that we just wouldn't have if they weren't in Ovid. Acteon is, is a better known one than that, uh, about the huntsman, Acteon, who is riding along with his lovely hunting dogs on the mountain, and he catches sight, by mistake, he catches sight of the goddess Artemis, Diana, bathing. I told you it was racy. Um, and it's such a gorgeous moment of Ovid being very Roman. These Greek uh, myths translated into Roman eyes. So for Ovid, it's my absolute favorite detail, is that Acteon sees Artemis, even though she's surrounded by her maidservants as she has her bath, because she's a god, she's taller. So she's head and shoulders above them, so you can see that it's her. They're obviously all at chest height, for want of a better euphemism. Um, <laughs> and she can see that it's him, and she is so angry. She says, oh, yeah, you try and tell somebody what you saw. And she turns him into a deer. She turns him into a stag. It's a recurring theme in the Metamorphoses, um, that when people lose power, they lose their voice. 
Uh, he's turned into a stag, but that is not punishment enough for Artemis, of course. His hunting dogs are right behind him, and they turn on him, not realizing that it's their master, and they rip him to pieces. And it being Ovid, he gives us a huge long list of the names of every single dog. This is Whirlwind, that's Dasher. That, I mean, it is really adorable. They all have these really sweet names about how vicious or speedy they are, and they tear him apart. He can't speak to them because, of course, he's turned into a deer. It's incredibly tragic. Michael Squire, who is a brilliant expert on ancient art, ladies and gentlemen, and thus has uh, rashly agreed to come and talk about visual arts on the radio. <laughs> Michael, we've talked a bit about how uh, Greek myth gets refracted through this sort of Roman prism and what that means in terms of its literary reception. What happens to it in terms of its reception in Ovid's time or just after Ovid? Are there examples of people you know, reading and trying to remake Ovid soon after him? So we certainly know that if you go to somewhere like Pompeii, for example, you can find little bits of, of it scratched onto the wall. When you look round paintings at Pompeii, it's been discussed whether you can actually find the sorts of myths that you see in the metamorphoses kind of reflected on the walls. And in some cases, I think you probably can if you're so minded. Narcissus would be a favourite example. We've got over 50 Narcissi um, on our walls at Pompeii. 50? 50. 50. Five zero. 50. Holy I think it's 51, actually, but don't hold me to that. I, I am <laughs> holding you to it. It's on the radio now. <laughs> it is now. At yeah. least 50, let's say. Yeah, so it's just one example of the way in which perhaps we imagine some educated viewers kind of looking at paintings and thinking, well... Uh, playing with the themes that you find in Ovid. And in some houses uh, uh, in Pompeii, you can also find a single room bringing together different myths that are all told in the metamorphoses and shuffling them and putting them together in a single space. So perhaps we're meant to imagine someone kind of having had their very nice Roman dinner, kind of coming out with their guests and talking about the paintings in kind of literary terms. It's also worth saying that even on our own sceptre dial here in England, it's been debated whether you can find in Lullingston in Kent, there's this amazing mosaic of Europa and the bull with an inscription underneath it that has been read in deeply Ovidian terms. So even here in Britain in the fourth century, it seems that people kind of have an awareness of Ovid and the kinds of games that he's playing. So that's 300 years after... Ovid. Yeah. Mm. It's worth saying that Ovid, at the very end of the Metamorphoses, talks about how he's going to live on. He says the final word of the Metamorphoses is, we wham, I will live, I shall continue to live. And he says, you know, wherever there is, um, wherever the people, wherever we have Roman power, there I shall be read and I shall be um, appreciated. And that seems to have been the case in the Roman world and indeed long beyond it. I think I mentioned in the story of Acteon that in the Metamorphoses, the loss of uh, a voice almost always can be uh, matched with a loss of power. And it seemed to me that uh, one of the m more brilliant sculptures that we get from the Metamorphoses is Daphne and Apollo. Yeah, it's a wonderful, um, wonderful example. So it's um, by Bernini um, around 1625, and of course in the Galleria Borghese in Rome. Um, I mean, Ovid's Metamorphoses kind of becomes an encyclopedia of myth. Um, it's a kind of, it's been called a kind of painter's Bible. Everything is there, it's a compendium. And this is a metamorphosis in its own right. So here is um, Bernini um, taking the story of Ovid and transforming it into stone. And again, you can see that real sort of self-consciousness, an obsession with medium. And of course, in the story of Daphne and Apollo, it's a story about how um, Apollo falls in love with Daphne, 
But of course, Daphne doesn't fall in love with Apollo. And so finally, in the final moment, she, after being um, pursued by Apollo, she cries out to her father and says, please help me. And at that moment, she begins to turn into a tree, into laurel. It's not, a, it's not an obvious help, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it does with the immediate problem, but it does in many ways set up a bigger problem that she's now a tree. I merely mentioned. We don't actually hear what her reaction is. <laughs> but Apollo does promptly take some of her laurel and put it into his crown. So Apollo does get his girl at the end of the day. Um, but in, in terms of the statue itself, you know, that kind of change, that metamorphosis, that transformation from flesh to bark becomes a transformation of flesh to stone. And here is, again, a real kind of play, a self-conscious play of flesh turning into bark and marble. Um, the hardness of marble versus the softness of flesh. Um, it's all there in Bernini's statue. Yeah, because she's properly mid-tree, isn't she? She's I mean, properly mid-tree. Her hand mid -tree. Is, is turning into twigs as we so, see it. And if you look at her fingers, and I'm doing a gesture because <laughs> we don't have a sculpture. Um, if you look at her, her fingers, they're turning into leaves and they have this amazing translucency. So you can kind of see, begin to see through the marble and it reflects light. So uh, just like a kind of a, a tree leaf in its own way. Even that is not my favourite metamorphosis. My favourite metamorphosis comes from book nine, and it is the story, little known, of Galanthus. And we are given this story in the context of the birth of Hercules. And Hercules, of course, is the son of Jupiter and a woman named, a human woman named Alcmena. Uh, Jupiter, as so often, has been playing away from home, let us say, tactfully. I'll tell you who's cross about that, Juno. Or if you have to pick an inciting incident in every single bit of the metamorphosis, pretty much, it's, has he again? Oh, <laughs> and she, oh, is she, yeah, uh-huh. Um, and so, she's furious, it's too late to do anything about it now, Altmena's in the process of giving birth, right? Except Juno does want to do something about it, so she orders the goddess of childbirth, Elithia in uh, Greek, Lucina, Lucino, I guess, in, uh, in Latin, and she orders her to stop the birth from happening. And so the goddess sits in the next room, it's such a brilliant image, with her legs crossed. <laughs> because Alcmena won't then be able to give birth, right? The goddess is preventing it. Um, and Galanthus can see that her mistress is in terrible pain and that it's all going to go really badly wrong. And so she also notes the goddess sitting in the next room. She runs into the room next to the birth and she says, oh, congratulate Alcmena, she's given birth to a healthy baby. And the goddess of childbirth goes, wait, what? And stands up and at that point Alcmena gives birth to Hercules. <laughs> because her legs are no longer crossed. And Juno is so angry that she is tricked by what is, after all, only one small step from, is your shoelace untied? <laughs> She's so angry, she instantly, instantly, turns Galanthus into a weasel. <laughs> Which means, Ovid helpfully tells us, henceforth, she will have to give birth through the mouth, like weasels do. <laughs> The word for weasel in Greek is gale, like galanthus, so it owes something to the story. And uh, the weasel is associated with giving birth to... You're looking at me like I'm literally insane. I'm, <laughs> I promise you it's that I haven't just made this up. Weasels are associated with giving birth to a healthy child to such an extent that Pliny the Elder tells us if you want to cure labour pains, and obviously feel free to try this at home, <laughs> except really don't. <laughs> Pliny the Elder suggests that the best cure for labour pains is the combination of goose semen <laughs> and weasel urine. 
And you see, again, you look at me skeptically. <laughs> but I think in your hearts, you have to acknowledge that it probably would distract you <laughs> from the pains of labor if at the same time as giving birth to a human child, you were additionally trying to titillate a goose. <laughs> and give a weasel a really big glass of water. <laughs> Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics, was written and performed by me, Natalie Haynes. My special guests were Llewellyn Morgan and Michael Squire, and our producer was Mary Ward-Lowry.